Welcome to Living Well into the Future, where we speak with individuals from different generations about the most pressing issues of our time, from food and housing to health care and climate. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. Our show is all about exploring potential solutions to complex problems, drawing on the expertise and insights of people from different backgrounds and age groups. Through meaningful conversations and thoughtful discussions, we aim to inspire positive change and make a real impact in our communities. So if you're interested in learning more about these critical issues and discovering innovative solutions, join us for Living Well into the Future. Together, let's work toward a healthy and secure future for all life on this planet. For more information about past episodes and the future episodes in the series, go to our new website, livingwellintothefuture.net. That's livingwellintothefuture, one word, dot net. You can find our previous episodes on WTBRFM.com and wherever you get your podcasts. In this series of episodes, we're going to consider water from the standpoint of availability, sustainability, and resilience. You will meet a diverse array of guests who focus on water from different perspectives. Our purpose in presenting them to you is to stimulate your discussions and actions as always. Today, in the first episode of our water series, we will speak with Rick Johnston, PhD, co-lead of the World Health Organization, UNICEF, Joint Monitoring Program for Water Supply, Sanitation, and Hygiene. Char Miller, PhD, an environmental historian, director of environmental analysis, W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History at Pomona College in California, and Heather Van Haas, an ecological consultant whom you have heard from before. Now let's turn to Rick Johnston, co-lead of the WHO, UNICEF Joint Monitoring Program for Water Supply, Sanitation, and Hygiene. After hearing his lecture as distinguished alumnus at University of North Carolina, Gillings School of Global Public Health, I spoke with him in Geneva, Switzerland via Zoom. Welcome, Rick. Nice to speak with you. Can you describe the work that you're doing now? Yeah, we call it a joint monitoring program. So that's the JMP, and it's co-run between the World Health Organization and UNICEF. And it tracks water, sanitation, and hygiene for every country in the world, looking at different settings. Most of the work they do is looking at what kind of water and sanitation and hygiene services people have in their homes. But we also collected on settings like schools and healthcare facilities. And so this kind of monitoring work draws on all kinds of different national data sources. Both the WHO and UNICEF are organizations of the UN. How does the data that you collect support the UN statement of goals and targets? All of the countries in the world meet regularly at the UN General Assembly. Back in 2015, you could say all the countries in the world agreed on a set of Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. And they put 17 goals out there that all countries should 
attempt to make progress towards between then, 2015, and 2030. And these goals cover all kinds of things, social, economic, environmental. Within each goal, there are a number of targets. So there's one goal, it's called six, that's about water and sanitation. And that has 12 different targets within it. And then each target might have one or two, or sometimes even three indicators, which are the things that you measure to see how progress is going towards those targets. So back in 2015, the countries set these targets, including the ones about drinking water and sanitation, and then different, usually UN agencies, but not always, are tasked with tracking them and monitoring them and finding these sources of data and telling the world what kind of progress is being made. You've been with the World Health Organization for almost 10 years now. Are you still on your first set of goals? I joined in 2013, but I had been doing some work with WHO even from 2010 onward. At that time, there was a set of global goals set by the UN member states called the Millennium Development Goals. They started in 2000 and they ran until 2015. So it was an interesting time because there was a lot of debate about what should replace these Millennium Development Goals. Those were much more limited in scope. There were only 18 targets and we ended up with 169 targets for the Sustainable Development Goals. Member states, countries, wanted to have more ambitious goals, targets, and indicators to cover more things that weren't covered in that last round of Millennium Development Goals. So it was very exciting to be part of that and to help design the new indicators that would be used to track these new targets. There are targets and there are measurements. Are there programs that seek to implement the goals? Yes. So a lot of programming in developing countries and also in countries that provide development assistance is aligned with the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. So countries will often set their, their national targets that are using the same language, sometimes the same indicators of the Sustainable Development Goals. Likewise, with the bilateral aid, the U.S., for instance, gives a lot of development assistance to countries around the world. And they use some of these indicators both to prioritize which countries need which types of support and also to track the impacts of development assistance. So one of the indicators that our team works on, it's called safely managed drinking water services. So sometimes a bilateral development agency will aim to increase by a million people or 10 million people or whatever, the number of people who have access to this level of safely managed drinking water services. And likewise, countries might set goals to increase their coverage from 50% to 60% with some of these same indicators over some time period. And so part of what you're doing then is measuring the efficacy of the programs, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Two aspects of water that are necessary for our future, one is adequacy of supply and the other is quality. Are there other aspects that you're concerned about? Stuff that I work on for water, it's really about, like you say, the quantities and the quality of water that people have access to for drinking and domestic purposes. But there's a lot of uses for water that go beyond that. There's water for the economy, for the environment, 
You can think about the importance of water in agriculture, which is the biggest user of fresh water. You can think about the health of rivers and wetlands and political challenges of transboundary cooperation. And all of those different aspects of water are covered within the sustainable development goal framework. They're all within this goal six on water and sanitation, but it's not WHO that is involved in monitoring all of them. So the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, FAO, they work with the agriculture sector. There's a UN environment program that works on some of the rivers and wetlands and more environmental quality issues. So this was a big change going from the Millennium Development Goals, which really just focused on very basic personal use of drinking water and sanitation to this more holistic view of water and sanitation for humans, but also for the economy and the environment. We'll put the link to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and Goal 6 in our show notes on our website at livingwellintothefuture.net. So when you travel around to different countries, is that to interact with the government or the, the policy maker? Yeah, exactly. Often I'll travel to a regional meeting. So for instance, next week I'm going to Senegal with a meeting of Western African countries who are planning household surveys over the next year or two to share latest good practices in collecting data on water sanitation and hygiene in household surveys. It's actually very efficient to meet with many countries at once, but sometimes we do have specific projects with individual countries. And then, of course, there's a lot of dissemination work. We put out reports every year, so we present the latest findings at global workshops or sometimes regional workshops to, to spread the news about, about the latest data. In talking about quantity and quality, when you gave the lecture at the Gillings School of Public Health at University of North Carolina, you talked about the fact that 75% of the world had adequate drinking water, meaning accessible, available, and clean water, and maybe 60% had adequate sanitation. Can you translate to the actual number of people who don't have adequate drinking water or good sanitation? Yeah, there's almost 8 billion people in the world today. I think we're at about 7.8 billion or so. So if you say that a quarter of the population doesn't have safely managed drinking water, that's 2 billion people. So that's a lot of people. The indicators that we use for drinking water, we call them safely managed drinking water services. So the water should be safe to drink. It shouldn't have fecal contamination, but it should also be accessible on the premises. So you don't have to go outside and collect water. Water should actually be available when you need it. Some of the other numbers around data are that there are about 1.8 billion people who don't have a drinking water supply on premises. So for all their domestic water uses, someone has to go outside of the house, get water and bring it back into the home. And we see that usually the burden of collecting water falls on women, sometimes on girls, in some countries, men and boys, but globally speaking, it's women who bear this, this burden. And of course that causes health problems, it causes time constraints. And this burden is largest in sub-Saharan Africa, where some women have to spend hours every day hauling water into the home. So I think that's one of the shocking figures that really stays with me. Can you measure the effect of these 2 billion people 
not having adequate water and more <laughs> that don't have adequate sanitation in terms of mortality, health? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that WHO works on and I'm involved with that as well. We review the scientific evidence about the impact of improving water sanitation hygiene on different health outcomes. We've estimated that about a million people die every year from diarrhea, which could have been prevented by having safe water, sanitation, and hygiene. So a million people a year. And this is mainly in low and middle income countries. Another disease that has an important impact is respiratory infections, things like pneumonia. And for this, especially hand hygiene is important because we know that if people regularly are washing their hands after they use the toilet, before they're preparing food and eating, that can reduce respiratory infections. We estimate that about 400,000 deaths per year could be prevented just by washing hands with soap and water at key time. That in itself is something to think about. Could you talk a little bit about the U.S. and and what the numbers show there? Sure. And one of the challenges of our program is it's hard to have one database that covers everything from the U.S. to Chad because the situations are so different. Um, we do review, we do collect data from the U.S. and we also keep an eye on the academic literature in the U.S. and the findings of non-governmental organizations, etc. And in the past couple of years, there have been some interesting studies that have come out. There was one that came out estimating that at least 2 million people in the U.S. don't have safe drinking water regularly, and that many more, probably tens of millions, don't have adequate sanitation. Some of the populations that are most likely to lack water and sanitation are Native American in different states, but also poor rural areas, and you have homeless populations. So it's hard to get nationally representative statistics on these groups because they tend to be isolated and hard to reach. If there's 2 million people without safe water in the U.S., that's still less than 1% of the population, and a standard survey might not pick that up. But um, there are also some areas that have quite well-known problems with sanitation. There's a region in Alabama called Lowndes County, where it's a rural area, so they don't have the density to have sewer coverage. But it also has a difficult geology. The soil is really clayey, so it's hard to build standard septic tanks and things like that, because what you would want is for the wastewater to soak into the soil and be treated that way. And it just can't work with that kind of clay soil. The, the public health services in Alabama have recognized that more than half of the population in their county doesn't have efficient sanitation. That's led to health problems. We've seen hookworm, which you think of as a disease of the poor, of the low and middle income countries. Hookworm is prevalent in this part of the country. But there's some good news about this. Just very recently, the, uh, the Biden administration has created a White House Office of Environmental Justice, and that's in part driven by this story in Alabama. And the county has gotten over $11 million through the American Rescue Plan Act that just passed recently. So they're going to be able to improve sanitation, at least in this county. But that's one example. And there's so many small rural areas, Native American reservations, areas that really struggle for, with these basic services that, that I think we're still going to have problems for some time in the U.S. context. Thank you.
you have said that monitoring influences behavior. And I think that was in many contexts, but one was how governments approach the water sanitation and hygiene in their country. So could you talk about that a bit? Sure. And I, I think the targets and the indicators that are used to measure the targets influence programming. So if we look back to the Millennium Development Goals, there were targets around what we call improved water and sanitation technologies. So like basic engineering around water and sanitation without focus on is the water from those hand pumps or those basic sources, is it safe to drink? Is it located on premises or do you have to spend a lot of time collecting it? Now with these new sustainable development goal indicators that do get more into the quality of service, you can definitely see that governments, that UN agencies, that NGOs are changing their programming approaches to, to focus on these new, these new service levels that are expressed with the indicators. Were the effects of increasing climate extremes considered in the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals? One of the Sustainable Development Goals is around climate. But within the water goal, there's nothing explicit around the impacts of climate on water and sanitation. Do you think the issues such as availability of water and climate migration either might be seen in or addressed in some way? We definitely see that climate change is already impacting water and sanitation services, more floods, you also see more droughts, impacts on water quality with salinization. You see more intense rainfall events, which leads to more runoff and less storage. So there's all kinds of ways in which peoples are already being negatively impacted because of climate change. And that's just like personal drinking water. The impacts on agriculture are huge, where farmers don't know when the rains are going to come anymore. They're coming at the wrong times. They're coming with the wrong intensities. One thing we're struggling with is how to recognize and account for these impacts of climate change in the sustainable development goals that we track. So we're trying to come up with ways to quantify the impact of climate change on water and sanitation services. We're also saying that countries are increasingly concerned about this, and so are development agencies and donors. So they're trying to orient their programming around making sure that whatever water and sanitation investments are made, that they're climate resilient. That's a kind of buzzword right now. If you're having a water plant, it should be a climate resilient water plant. But there's still no universal understanding of what that means. There's a real wide range of things you can do to try to make services more resilient. And it's hard to compare them all together and to see how well they're actually working. Because the other thing about climate resilience is you don't really know how resilient your water and sanitation system is until it receives a shock, like a drought or a flood or something. And then you can see how well did we make it through that, that shock. You had mentioned that there's a human rights aspect of water availability. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. This links back to the United Nations. And back in 2010, the United Nations, which is all the member states in the world, it's not the agencies, it's the countries, the countries recognized a human right to water, and they recognized what that meant. And there's some language around that. It means that people, everyone, everywhere should have access to sufficient, safe, acceptable 
physically accessible and affordable water. So each of those different words there, you can think about, okay, safe, what does that mean? What does accessible mean? And can we measure those things? Can we program towards those things? And that happened in 2010. So it was actually very good timing because it influenced this whole transition into developing the new set of sustainable development goals. So a lot of those concepts made their way into the indicators, like we have water safety, but we have physical accessibility also where we're saying that the water supply should be located in the home or the yard so that people don't have to collect water. It should also be affordable. That's a really hard one because it's very hard to measure. So we don't have good data on affordability for a global indicator, but it still has influenced how countries, how development partners are programming to make sure that when water, when sanitation services are available, that they're available at a reasonable and affordable cost. How is progress made toward the goals? Every country has its own sector that, that has sector development plans and targets around water and sanitation and hygiene. There's a tremendous amount of money that's coming from people and from governments. Development assistance is an important addition to that, and sometimes it can allow governments to explore new things or to reach populations that they couldn't just with national resources, but it's not the biggest source of funding for sure. But every country has some kind of, it might be a five-year plan, it might be a 10-year plan to improve all kinds of services and water and sanitation are usually high in there, especially water. Sanitation does get a little bit left behind. Politicians love cutting the ribbon on a new drinking water plant. Also, people tend to advocate more for water. If people don't have access to water, they really suffer and they make that known and their political leaders are motivated usually to do something about it. Sanitation, it's a little bit more invisible. People can get by without an adequate toilet. There's a saying, water is life and sanitation is dignity. And so there are a lot of people who have inadequate sanitation. We said a quarter of the population lacked decent water. It was more like half of the population, about 3.6 billion people that don't have proper sanitation. So those people... They're suffering health problems because when you have poor sanitation, you have a lot of germs circulating in the environment. So that leads to that 1.4 million deaths per year. But still, people don't make as much of fuss and political actors don't make as much of fuss about sanitation as they do drinking water. Just a moment on the third part of what you're measuring, which is hygiene. And I think you've talked about the number of children who don't have adequate hand-washing facilities. And so could you talk about the hygiene part of it? Sure. Hygiene we measure in households, but also in schools. In households, though, we, we calculate that about 30% of the population doesn't have access to water and soap in the home and a place to wash hands. So when you have something like a global pandemic and there's a lot of messaging around how you need to wash your hands to, to prevent the transmission of diseases, and there will be more pandemics and hand hygiene will be important for those. For over 2 billion people, that's just not something that they could do. And of course, it leads to water. We said there were 1.8 billion people who don't have the water supply on premises. It's hard to wash your hands if you have to haul the water into the home that you're gonna to use to wash hands. But if we look at schools also, schools are really important for water and sanitation hygiene because children learn good practices there. They build habits for a lifetime. Also, there's a lot of germs circulating in schools, so it's really good if you can have hand-washing facilities. 
Yeah, and we found that there are about 800 million children who go to schools that don't have water and soap available for hand washing. And especially in the context of COVID, when so many schools were closed and then wanted to make sure that they were safe to students, to staff when they reopened. It's hard to say that a school can safely reopen if you don't have soap and water in the context mm. of a pandemic. The statistics put the importance of the issue in perspective. So for my last question, in the course of time that you've been working in water and water development, have you seen progress in working toward the goal that we've been talking about? There's definitely progress being made, and that's what's always heartening. Um, sometimes, though, you need to step back and look at a long time frame to see it. When I started working in the sector in the late 90s, we would talk about two to three to five million people dying each year. We would talk about a million children dying from diarrheal disease alone. And now that's down to about 300,000 children under five. In the 80s, it was estimated that more than 10 million people each year died because of unsafe water and sanitation hygiene. So if we're at one, one and a half million and now, that's tremendous progress, but it's happened over a 40-year time span. We see that progress can happen rapidly in countries like India, where they really have changed things over the span of just a few years. But that's the exception, I would say. It was a massive program, flagship program. It's more common to see every year, 1%, 2% more people have decent services. It's also a challenge because you have population growth, you have urbanization. So especially in urban settings, it's hard to keep up with the number of people who need new water and sanitation services. So sometimes you can have a lot of new infrastructure and services in urban settings, but the proportion of people stays the same who have basic services just because there's so much population growth. But I think the goals do help and having countries set targets to reach goals, even if it's not by 2030, but to have in mind that goal that we want the entire population to have safe drinking water, to have decent sanitation in the home and where the waste is actually treated. It's not just emptied out into the environment. I think that that does lead to long-term improvements in people's lives and in the health of the populations. Thank you, Rick Johnston, for speaking with me. I very much appreciate your time. Before I let you go, is there something that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? No, thanks. I'm glad you asked about the U.S. context, because a lot of times people think this is just a problem of poor people in other countries. But there are a lot of challenges in the U.S. So I think if people are concerned about poor water sanitation hygiene, there's work to be done here at home as well in the U.S. And it's heartening to see, at least in the example of Lowndes County, some change is going to happen. And I hope that through activism, through pushing for environmental justice, through bringing pressure on political leaders, we can make sure everyone, at least in the U.S., has access to a decent standard of living, including water sanitation hygiene. And the flip side of that is to make sure that the U.S. continues to support work overseas. And that's where I think the U.S. has been quite consistent and strong. There's legislation that binds Congress to make sure that they continue supporting overseas countries. And that can be hard to sustain when the economy's tight. People say, why do we need to spend money on overseas issues? But it really does make a difference. Keep up the pressure for our elected representatives to maintain overseas assistance. Thanks again.
Now that we've heard about water from a global perspective from Dr. Rick Johnston, we'll turn to Dr. Char Miller, an environmental historian, director of environmental analysis, W.M. Keck professor of environmental analysis and history at Pomona College in California. Here he is. Everybody recognizes that the systems that we created are dependent upon weather patterns that no longer exist. That is true for the Quabbin Reservoir, the Shees, parts of Massachusetts, and the Croydon Dam and others reservoirs that serve New York City, the Delaware River that is crucial to New York City and Philadelphia places in between for their drinking water. We've got natural systems that we've been pumping. We have groundwater that we've been pumping. We have reservoirs that we created and then pump. And if you have precipitation shifts, radical shifts, as we've been experiencing what they call whiplash weather, that you move from one to the other really rapidly, our systems aren't designed to be that flexible. And that poses dilemmas for us for sustainability on the one hand and absolutely for resilience. And then when you add the question of environmental justice on top of it, it becomes really a very complicated story, which we are not talking enough. So let's talk about it. I heard Chorer speaking about his latest book, Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril, which we will link to in the show notes. For this interview, I found him at his office in California. Char, you're an environmental historian, and after reading many of your essays in Natural Consequences, I find that you're also a very keen and detailed observer of your current environment. One of the chapters in Natural Consequences is on water, so let's go there. Can you tell us how water as an issue came on your radar? Oh, yeah. And to understand how water got onto my radar is to watch me walk into San Antonio in 1981 and realize I, I didn't understand it in good part because I didn't understand its watershed. Actually, in truth, I didn't really understand the concept of watershed until I moved to San Antonio. Water was just a thing that I grew up with in New England, but I couldn't tell you then, though I can now, what creeks and rivers flowed through places that I lived and played and worked in. It just was not a concept that I thought about very much, honestly, but it became powerfully clear to me that if you don't think about watersheds, you're in real trouble. And San Antonio showed me that on so many occasions when it went underwater. So floods throughout the 80s and 90s and right up through when we moved west to California in 2007, every one of those floods had a moment where I went, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. The other piece of that was thinking about flood control, not just the floods that needed clear going through something called a low water crossing, which is a misnomer, but they really meant with high water and flood tides. <laughs> but how do you control this stuff? And we lived close to Olmos Dam, which, as I discovered, had been built in the middle 1920s, after the 1921 flood, which was so impressive in its size, told me another story, which is that little creek, Olmos Creek, is a brutal thing when it's roaring full force. 
And again, there were moments when I got to witness that and realized why that dam was there. And relatedly, why there weren't dams on other parts of town that were as badly inundated, if not worse a lot, which had a lot to do with a kind of environmental injustice. One of the things I learned at San Antonio was A, watersheds matter. The second was how you want to control those watersheds, if in fact you need to, is really predicated on politics. So water is water, but there's a politics of water that then determines the in which people respond to it. Some of the decisions made then have ramifications were, let's protect the downtown core of San Antonio, which the old dam does. And how would the other people about whom this was thought of were the whole Hispanic population that were clustered along the West Side Creek, and who year after year, from the very beginnings of the city up until the 1970s, were devastated because the political calculation was they don't matter. Their property doesn't matter. Their bodies don't matter. What matters are those who live on high ground, and that usually were white and wealthier people, and the businesses in the downtown core, which those same white people owned. And so there was a mismatch between what kind of money got spent in one place and where we get spent on another. We'll connect to Char's book, West Side Rising, on the subject in the show notes. The other thing that begins to emerge in the 70s and 80s that, like you, I got to bear witness to, was the water, the water you don't see. And in San Antonio, that means the Edwards Aquifer, which was the sole source of drinking water for this large community and for many others. And so part of what I began to write about was, on the one hand, floods and flood control, because that was a huge story in San Antonio. The other is this commodious, magnificent aquifer, the size of which we still don't really know, that had been tapped since the 1890s, that produced an enormous amount of water for Boston and San Antonio and every place in between, as well as agriculture up in the Edwards Plateau, but which was highly contentious between rural and urban areas, between agricultural and industry and recreation. And that's another lesson about the politics of water, that if you flip on the faucet and you don't realize whatever it is you're drinking, that there's a whole infrastructure that lies beneath that plumbing system that brings the water to you. And whether it brings it to you or not depends on where you live and what kind of political power that place has ways that is different from other places. We have to talk about when we're taking Absolutely. about sustainability and resilience, who is it for? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's part of what became increasingly clear in the fight over the aquifer in the 70s, 80s, well into the 90s and 2000s, is the response to the inequities that we had been seeing was a really interesting cross-sector coalition, cops, Metro Alliance, Northside Environmental Activists, and others, bonded together to fight to protect the aquifer on the one hand, to slow down development over the recharge zones on the other. And while for contemporary folks today in 2023 may not remember those battles, they were hugely important in shaping a counter-thrust to Anglo control and power by creating for black, brown, and white coalitions, water became a mechanism by which they could join hands. And that has, I would argue, 
That's what watersheds are, right? The, the upper end of the watershed and the lower end of the watershed in a physical sense are bound up with one another. And until you start to activate that knowledge, that is to say, think about those who are not you and won't lie in this watershed, you're never going to get anywhere. So part of what the environmental justice movement in San Antonio, beginning in the early 1970s, has done is to change the dynamic because it changed the nature of politics surrounding water. There's a countervailing concern. So you've been talking about flood, but of course, drought has been yeah. another issue that is significant. And do you have any insight into that if we're talking about San Antonio first? Yeah, the drought conditions that have obviously been ratcheted up over the years. And so when San Antonio is in a dry period, and collectively the southwest of the United States, from Los Angeles to roughly El Paso, maybe San Antonio, has been drying out fairly regularly since the 1980s. We can get big storms. That's not the issue. The issue is what's the long-term pattern. And because drought is let's call it enduring, it also is crucial to keep one other factor in mind, which is San Antonio is now over 2 million people. When I arrived in 1981, it was about 750,000 people. It was about 100,000 people at the beginning of the 20th century. So drought at one time is not the same thing as drought at another. When you've got 2 million bodies that need water, you're stretching the resource even more than you could have imagined when you were 750,000, let alone 100,000. That's equally true in Phoenix and Tucson. It's equally true in El Paso. Anything along I-10, if you just think about the I-10 corridor from San Antonio west to Los Angeles, those cities, which have blossomed inside, are also some of the most vulnerable places in terms of the swings between drought and deluge. And when we're in a drought, we've got a problem collectively about how we manage ourselves. If you look at the forecasts for the effect of the climate changes on the Northeast, yeah. we've been complacent in the water that we've had for all of the time I've been alive anyway. But those same extremes, the floods and the drought, are going to be more protracted and more obvious in the northern part of the country as well. So to get to one of your sort of pivotal points, the world that we live in was created by people for whom these radical swings in temperature and moisture, drought and deluge, were much less obvious. And so they set up systems of distributing water that were predicated on the world they knew then. But we don't live then. We live now. And the now we live in operates in a very different way. And yet we have systems that are not designed to be flexible. They're rather brittle. So let me give a couple examples from the West, which I know is also true for many places in the East. Denver has four tunnels bored through the Rocky Mountains to tap the middle and upper watershed of the Colorado River to bring water to it. The Colorado River is, let's call it emptying, is a generous way to think about it. Those bores, those tunnels, 
are not going to be very effective. You can't change them. You can't move them. And so Los Angeles, which has aqueducts and dams all over the place to bring water from the Colorado and from the eastern Sierra and the northern part of California, if it doesn't snow, the city is in trouble. And it outside of this year, 2022-23, when we had enormous amounts of precipitation, everybody feels very happy, but everybody also recognizes that the systems that we created are dependent upon weather patterns that no longer exist. That is true for the Quabbin Reservoir that feeds parts of Massachusetts and other systems that the Croydon Dam and others reservoirs that serve New York City, the Delaware River that is crucial to New York City and Philadelphia places in between for their drinking water. We've got natural systems that we've been pumping. We have groundwater that we've been pumping. We have reservoirs that we created and then pump. And if you have precipitation shifts, radical shifts, as we've been experiencing what they call whiplash weather, that you move from one to the other really rapidly, our systems are designed to be that flexible. And that poses limits for us for sustainability on the one hand and absolutely for resilience. And then when you add the question of environmental justice on top of it, it becomes really a very complicated story, which we are not talking enough. We've talked about weather and water. Let's tell another tale of water. And that's about the Agalala Aquifer. Here's Heather Van House, ecological consultant, principal in regenerative environmental design, who grew up on a ranch located over the Agalala Aquifer. I think my career to date, the things that I enjoy thinking about, probably started from my childhood, growing up in a farming and ranching family. High Plains is dependent upon the Agalala Aquifer. It's the largest aquifer in the U.S., and it's dwindling. It does not recharge at the rate that it's being consumed. And so there were some booming decades in there where the resource wasn't completely understood and agriculture in the high plains really soared. That has now passed because of the depletion or the depleting levels of the aquifer. And it left behind a farming framework that allowed me to really understand the competition and the tug of war that takes place between economics and natural systems. And just like the grain elevators that are no longer in operation, a natural question for a child is, what is that? Why is it so big? Why don't we use it anymore? And then having explained to me what I just explained to you, why the land isn't as productive anymore, because they don't have as much irrigation because the aquifer levels have gone down and it cannot recharge at the same rate. That was a conversation from a friend as far back as I can remember. It was explained to me. And my family voluntarily dry land farms, which means that they do not rely on the aquifer to sustain the crops. And so they get around 19 inches of rain. And the goal is to capture every drop, every bit of precipitation that you can. Is that torrential rain? Is it not spread out? It occurs mostly in the spring and the summer, but there is rain year round. It's not all in one time, but there's definitely seasons where it's greater. And in order to be successful at dryland farming, you have to pay closer attention. You have to think about the soils. You have to think about 
how you manage the land to capture the water. You have to think about the crops that you use, about the cattle in the system that you use to manage it, all of that. And I was really just blessed to grow up in in that area and with family that would talk to me and take me to work with them and to explain to me what I was seeing. Now that you've heard Heather's observations, let's go back to Char Miller and tap into the study of the Ogallala Aquifer. He was co-author of Ogallala, Water for a Dry Land, published in 2018. We'll provide a link to the title in our show notes. Could you tell us about that aquifer? Sure. It's one of the most extraordinary aquifers, groundwater storage systems on the planet. Uh, it runs through seven states, Wyoming, south through the northern part of Texas, eastern Colorado, western Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. I don't even know that we know the full physical extent of it, although people have been studying it for a very long time. The original settler colonists who came in there didn't know it existed. So some of this is like, once you discover it, you can't live without it. There's a cautionary tale unto itself. But it really doesn't get mined at extraordinary rates until after World War II, where new pumps and plumbing and systems to pull water out of their, what they call upside down rain, was available. Just drop a pipe and let it go. Um, they did that in Southern California, also in other places, with both extraordinary success and terrible environmental consequences. Natural consequences, you might call them, except that they're very human in their origin. And so part of what happened to the Ogallala is that those who had once done dry land agriculture, both grazing and that was dry land because that's what they knew and could make a living based on that, suddenly became wet agriculture things that required tons of water. They start doing consolidated animal feedlots, which literally build hogs and cattle and the like based on free-flowing water and other kinds of resources that have fundamentally changed that landscape such that there are parts of it you can no longer tap. A bad sign. It gets worse when you realize that unlike the Edwards Aquifer in San Antonio in the sort of Edwards Plateau, this one doesn't recharge, or rather, it recharges really slowly. If you turned off every spigot, every faucet, every center pivot, everything, it would take 6,000 years for it to return, which is basically game over. So I think the regenerative agriculture that you're talking about is predicated, at least in part, on going back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, and doing dry land agriculture of one form or another, ranching and the like, because that's a grassland. That's what it's built to do and regenerate the indigenous plant systems that made it possible, get rid of plows and all of those other things. That's a hard thing to imagine because the Ogallala is one of the major sources of food for the world, not just the United States. It and the Central Valley of California are the two most productive areas in North America. And yet, they're also the places that are under greatest watch for overmining, destroying groundwater supplies, not just the water, but the very systems, the physical structures, the geology on which those systems are based. So we got a lot of good stuff coming off of free water 
And now we're paying the cost for that sort of rampaging economy. I think when we've talked previously about the fact that there isn't a national will, but every place and every site and every geography and geology is unique. So where do the solutions or can the solutions come from? Yeah, so the philosophical position, political position, and I play with this and use natural consequences, the book as a way to open up the story, is that a lot of the decisions that we're talking about will, in fact, ultimately be local in derivation, or at least in origin. You can build outwards from there and coalitions thinking about their relationships with other communities and develop this different model by which we can make political change. It's really hard at the state capital level. It's really hard at Congress's level, at the congressional level. But one of the things you start to imagine is reaching out on issues that you share with other people and other communities to figure out what their best practices are, adapt and transport those ideas into your own place. If you think about the upper part of a watershed and the lower part of that watershed and everything in between is sharing a physical system. And if you can build coalitions along that, because we all depend on this, then you go back to ideas of indigenous people in one way and late 19th century geological thinking with John Wesley Powell and others who said, look, this is the way we should build the West, literally around watersheds, because if you do that, there's at least the hope that those upstream and downstream can be in conversation with one another because they're all drawing off of the same resource. What if we thought about that in other ways, right? And we have some of these entities. If you think about some of this is figuring out these really interesting systems that would allow us to do at a local level that has statewide, maybe even national implications. How in the face of all of these changed circumstances can your wisdom as a historian help move things along so that the scale is increased, the impact is yeah. increased. You're, you're asking a political question because in the end, to get scale requires political will. And at the moment, at a national level, that will doesn't exist, or rather the will exists, but it's also frustrated by the fact that there is not a House of Representatives that is in fact, interested in this, there are state legislatures that effectively have shut down conversations about climate change. And so what we're going to do is the only thing we can do is that at a local level where individuals can have a greater sway, you can do it on one's property. You can do it in communities that are small, that are in places that have the capacity to think out these problems. Urban areas have a better chance of surviving because they can, in fact, be more nimble because their ideas tend to be driven by the reality of climate change, not its denial. And so what we're seeing is a kind of partial response. So one state will move forward, others will not. And unfortunately, the downstream consequences of that are that a place like Wyoming and or Montana or Mississippi and Alabama that are bedrocks of opposition to their perception of climate change are going to find themselves in great jeopardy in the coming years. We've got to change the models by which we think about the world 
some of it is on the ground realities. Look at what is happening. The fires that are burning and the smoke that is moving from Canada into the United States and well beyond tells us how globally connected we are. We in the AO in one place, the air that a fire has burned in another place, and we've got to see it has nothing to do with national boundaries. It has everything to do with the fact that if we live on a particular planet that operates in the way that it does. You know, it was a dust storm from the 1930s that reached Washington, D.C. and turned it dark. That really accelerated a lot of the soil conservation movement agenda forward that said, you know what, we've got a deal with the Dust Bowl. Before it was out there in Oklahoma in the panhandle over the Ogallala. Suddenly, it was in D.C. You know what? It took less than a decade for the introduction of plows and tractors to so transform the landscape in Oklahoma, Texas, eastern Colorado, and elsewhere that you've got these incredible dust storms as a consequence. Less than 10 years, that's how fast we can change the planet, and also how fast we could rectify the mistakes we made if we act. What can individuals do then in the face of what you have observed both currently and through your studies? We go back to those ranchers that have figured this out and are doing smart work to make their stewardship of the land more resilient, more sustainable, and actually biodiverse. These are things that my students talk about all the time because they understand the politics of what's going on. But they've also got their own politics, which is, how do I align my ideals with the reality that I choose to live in? And that means living that way. And so many of them, one of those choices is they want to live in urban areas because urban areas are some of the most creative places on the planet. You can ride your bike. You can ride on mass transit. You can do things that, about your mobility for example, that reduces the broader experience and costs of moving as opposed to driving a car, say. You can live in a place where you do not have lawns, or if you have a place that has a lawn, rip it up. And so it is block by block, house by house, apartment by apartment, community by community, and that just takes an enormous amount of time. But we don't have any other choice. This is an existential crisis. Which is why you wrote Natural Consequences. Yeah, yeah, that's why I wrote the book, which was, and talk to myself also, come on, you know, do stuff, and to both to write about these problems and also to explain the way in which these problems are linked up, whether it's wildfires or watershed issues or recreation or whatever it may be, how they have a past, that if we understand that past, we can better intervene in the present to make the future conditions a bit less onerous and perhaps a bit more sustainable. Thank you, Char Miller. You'll hear more from Char, along with his student, Spencer Nicholas, later in the series. Thank you, too, to Richard Johnston and Heather Venhouse for speaking with us today. You can find out more about our guests and topics, along with our show notes 
at livingwellintothefuture.net. Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. Thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali, WTBR-FM 89.7 Pittsfield for their support. Our music is written and performed by Michael Poppenheffer. The opinions expressed in this program are those of our guests and not WTBR or Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.